We'll take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled Life Together. Life Together. As we're going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, this book of 1 Thessalonians that we began back in January, we find ourselves kind of in the middle of chapter 5, leading right to the end of the entire epistle. Now, if you can reach back in the recesses of your mind to a sermon I preached eight weeks ago, if you were here or if you were awake, then um, I want to remind you of something I said way back then. And it's a phrase I used that was sometimes said to me by my parents or by my teachers, something to this effect. Troy, you're doing really good, but, do I remember? You could do better. (laughs) You're doing well. You're achieving some things here and there, but you could do more. You could do better, Troy. You've got so much potential you're not fulfilling. Well, the Apostle Paul says a very similar thing to this church in Thessalonica in chapter 4, verse 1. Look with me again at this verse. I'll remind you of what we read eight weeks ago. He wrote, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. In other words, you're doing well, but you can do better. You can do better in how you walk and how you seek to please the Lord. And so from chapter four, verse one, Paul does what he often does in his epistles. He turns from the theological to the practical. In chapter four, verse one, through the rest of the book, he now gives some practical application, how to live out these principles, how to live out These truths. And that's what we've been studying for the last eight weeks. And that's what we'll be looking at today. And here's the underlying message of not only the entire epistle, but specifically the passage we're going to be looking at today. It's this You cannot live the Christian life effectively on your own. You can't do it. Now, I think this message, though I've repeated it time and again here in this church, it needs to be repeated time and again, particularly because of the the brand of Christianity that is American evangelical Christianity. Because the predominant message we hear in the church in America particularly, it's very individualistic. It's very individual focused. So that means the Bible studies you may participate in, the books you may buy on the Christian bookstore website because there's no more physical bookstores anymore, right? Even the sermons that are preached What are they all about? How you individually live your Christian life. And I'm here to tell you, that's not the dominant message of the New Testament. The dominant message of the New Testament is not how you individually live your Christian life. It's how we collectively live together. The message of the New Testament is not you, 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 you. It's y'all, y'all, y'all. That's how we're called to live. And that's how we're called to approach the Christian life. It is a group project as much as we despise those in school. It's a community effort. It's a team approach. And the focus of this passage and even the passage we'll study next week has to do with how we worship together. This week, we're going to look at how we do life together. So this message is specifically for members of Lookout Valley Baptist Church. If you're a guest here today, we invite you to listen in, but this is family talk we're going to have today. All right. We invite you to listen in Now, as I read these four verses, the focal text for the sermon today, I want you to kind of keep track of how many individual, specific, direct exhortations 
the Apostle Paul gives in this short paragraph, four verses. You can keep track on your fingers and toes if you need to, okay? Let's read what the Bible says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. How many did you come up with? I'm giving you the answer, okay? I'm a good teacher. I'm giving you the answer ahead of time. There were 10 specific, unique, direct instruction in this short paragraph, and it should be noted. These 10 instructions cannot be fulfilled or obeyed individually. They must be followed and obeyed corporately. Now, if I were to say to you, read your Bible more often, that's an individual command. If I were to say to you, you probably need to pray more often, that's an individual command. But again, the bulk of the commands of the New Testament and certainly the 10 here in this short passage are community commands. We have to grow in maturity. We have to grow in sanctification together. Here's why. Because of our, most of our issues are with people. <laughs> so we have to grow in sanctification with people. Now I would point out that Paul addressed them in this letter multiple times and specifically here in this section as brothers. And in so doing, what he's doing is he's highlighting our familial connection. We are family, right? That's who we are. We're a family. We're called to relate to one another as brothers and as sisters in the faith. And as we considered last week, though we are children of the day, though we have been individually converted from death to life, we've been converted into a family. We've been converted into the church. Therefore, the only option for Christian living is within the context of spiritual family. Now, I've consolidated these 10 specific instructions and encouragements into really three primary points on the message today. Hopefully, you had an outline you can follow along as we consider our life together as a spiritual family of faith. The first thing I want us to notice is this. Number one, there must be a respect for spiritual overseers. There must be a respect in the body for spiritual overseers. How is the church collectively instructed and called to relate to those who have been given spiritual oversight in the church? Now, this church in Thessalonica, we've talked about before, it's a young church, it's a fledgling church, it's a very new congregation that Paul started. So, what constitutes a local church? What constitutes that this is in fact a church? Is it just where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus? Is that a church? No. A church is not a constituted church unless there's leaders. We see this all through the New Testament. Paul, as he was traveling through on his different missionary journeys, going into town after town, city after city, establishing churches, sharing the gospel, people being evangelized, what was an indispensable part of his work? I'll show you one example in Iconium and Lystra. In Acts chapter 14, notice what he did there. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This was Iconium and Lystra, but it's through all of Paul's missionary journeys. He would lead people to the Lord. 
His missionary team would evangelize a city or region. They would establish a church. And after spending time discipling, they would identify men of maturity to be the pastors of that local church. They didn't just leave them on their own. They appointed, according to Acts 14, 23, elders for every church. So not just one or two. Every church had leaders. So this was his common practice. And so as we come here to the church in Thessalonica, no doubt he had done the same thing there. He'd established the church, he'd discipled those members, and he had appointed leaders, pastors, elders, overseers. And so how is this body supposed to relate to these overseers that he's established in that church? Well, look again at verse 12 and 13. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, we don't know the backstory of why Paul felt he needed to give them this specific instruction right here. We don't know if maybe some report had gotten to Paul's ears that they weren't respecting their leaders. They weren't highly esteeming their pastors. That's possible. But I think more likely, this is just general instruction. This is just a general encouragement to respect those who are in authority. Why? Because I believe the same thing that's true today in the 21st century was true in the first century. We generally have a suspicion and distrust of people in authority. Would you say that's true? People that are in power, people that are my boss, whether it's at home, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's in the church, there's a general suspicion, uncertainty, distrust for those in authority. And so from this sentence, I want us to see a couple of things that Paul gives regarding this respect for the overseers in the church. The first thing is this. Paul lays out the expectation of the elders. The expectation of the elders. We know he's speaking specifically of elders and pastors here in this church because he designates and outlines their specific functions and duties within the body. Here's what they do. And so the, the, the breakdown of this and the structure of this sentence is like this. He gives a definite article, going back to English, eighth grade, all right? The definite article, the or those, he gives this definite article, those, and then he gives three participles in the Greek that follow the definite article. Here's the three participles. Those, definite article, who, participle one, labor among you. Participle two, are over you. Participle three, and admonish you. This is the act activity of elders. This is the function of pastors. Now, the first expectation of elders he gives us is they are those who labor, who labor. And I know the running joke for pastors is they only work one day a week, right? They work on Sundays. The rest of the week, while they're playing golf, right? I don't play golf, trust me. Now, no doubt, there are lazy pastors. In 25 years plus of pastoral ministry, I've worked with some lazy pastors. If you're lazy, don't get into the ministry. It's been my endeavor that you may call me a lot of things, but I hope you can never call me lazy. We labor. The word here for labor means to work to the point of sweat, to work to the point of exhaustion. There's no room in pastoral ministry for laziness. There's no room for just doing enough to get by. In fact, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he lays out explicitly 
the expectation of elders to be laborers, working to the point of exhaustion. In fact, he gives the very specific arena of labor where pastors are to devote their attention. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Same word we saw just a moment ago. Especially those who labor, same word, work to the point of sweat, labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. There should be great toil in the preaching and the responsibility of teaching and training the congregation. Several weeks ago, I read a blog post by a a church leader, seminary professor that I respect highly. And in this blog post, he he offered this uh, challenge or really direction to pastors. He said in the blog, "I, I would encourage you pastors not to refer to your space of labor as the pastor's office, but call it the pastor's study. Here's why I wanted to make that distinction. Though that space of work that I occupy all week long, I do administrative duties in there, for sure. I counsel people every week in there, one-on-one, one-on-two. I make phone calls. I write letters. But the primary responsibility I have in that space is to study the Word of God. It's the pastor's study. And it should be noted, unless a preacher gives wearisome toil to the preparation for preaching, it will be apparent to all. Have you ever heard a sermon? You know this guy did not spend much time in preparation. There was not much labor involved in this. Next, the elders are also expected to provide spiritual oversight. He identifies these church leaders as, here's the participle, those who are over you in the Lord. Well, who's the Lord? (laughs) That's Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor of Lookout Valley Baptist Church. I'm not the senior pastor of this church. I'm the associate pastor to our lead pastor. Jesus rules and reigns this church, but he has given to this church a grace gift of elders, of pastors, of overseers. And this task, this expectation for elders to provide spiritual oversight to their congregation is all through the New Testament as well. I'll just show you one example. Uh, Another church that Paul established, the church in Ephesus, he's sailing on a missionary journey. He calls for the elders in Ephesus to come to the coastal town of Miletus, and there he gives them a charge. He gives them instruction. In part, he says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, pay, this is speaking only to the elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So there's this shepherding, this pastoral work in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers, episcopos, overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's Christ's church, it's not the elders' church. But he has called elders to provide oversight, to provide shepherding responsibility. Now, what is oversight? This is leadership, this is direction, this is vision, this is coordination. And so this oversight has been given to elders, to pastors. And, and I use those terms interchangeably because they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. Elder, overseer, pastor. Here's the thing. Each and every one of you will stand before God and give account for your life. But none of you, except the elders of this church, will give account before God for how this church is led. Only the elders Let me tell you that if you think about that as a pastor, it'll keep you awake at night. But I'm going to stand before Jesus 
He's going to ask me, how did you shepherd my church? How did you shepherd my people? The, the third participle, identifying the duties and the expectation of elders, he points out, is admonish you. Admonish you. The NASB translate this as to give instruction. This is the function of primarily preaching and teaching. Sometimes this word for admonish is translated to rebuke or to correct. We see how this responsibility is particularly fleshed out in Paul's second letter to Timothy. Let's look down at 2 Timothy 4.2. Paul says this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So what it means for an elder to admonish his congregation is to hold the word of God up and say, live like this. Function like this. Be like this. Do this. Don't do that. This is admonishment. This is what pastors are called to do, to work diligently towards, to admonish, to provide oversight, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So this is the expectation of elders. Well, let's turn now to the congregation. Let's see the consideration of the congregation. How is the congregation to consider those who have been given oversight in their church? Um, Again, this letter is being written to the church as a whole, and this is how this church as a whole is to consider their overseers, their elders, their pastors. Two verbs which identify this for us. Respect those who labor among you and esteem them very highly because of their work. Respect and high esteem. Now, some of you may be thinking right now, boy, this is a very self-serving sermon, Troy, (laughs) that you're telling your church, respect me, highly esteem me. I'm over you in the Lord. Give me the respect, right? Well, let me kind of deflect if you've had that thought already or I just put it in your mind. Let me deflect that in a couple of ways. One, if you know anything about the way we preach here, we preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. I didn't just pick this text out today because I feel disrespected, right? We preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible, and we just happen to arrive at this passage this Sunday. And friends, listen, it would be negligent for me not to preach this passage. I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God. But let me deflect that thought in a second way and maybe kind of do really what the Apostle Paul does here. The Apostle Paul doesn't say to the church in Thessalonica, respect me, esteem me. He says, respect those who are over you. So let me just tell you, I I love you, and I feel incredibly loved by you, respected by you, and esteemed by you. So let me deflect it just by saying all the other elders, all the other pastors that God has given this church, respect them. Highly esteem them in the Lord because of their work. In fact, look at this next slide. Our elders meet together about every two weeks, and uh, just to, you know, a month and a half ago or so, we commissioned Ronnie to go, and uh, that's Ronnie Brown on the far right. We commissioned him, one of our elders, to go pastor uh, uh, Faith Community Church down in Trenton. And so we want to take this picture just as a matter of record. And so you see, I'm going to go from left to right here, and I'm going to call them by this title collectively Pastor Tracy, Pastor Daryl, Pastor Troy, Pastor Gene. Pastor Joe, Pastor Wade, Pastor Mike, and Pastor Ronnie. This is God's gift to you, church. God has given you mature, faithful, diligent men 
who are over you in the Lord. And I'm telling you, respect them. Highly esteem them because of their work. This is life together as a church. Paul Paul is calling on all pastors to be intensely laborious, working diligently. And listen, most of those guys don't get a red penny from this church. They're all volunteer, the lay elders. And he's calling for the congregation to honor and respect him. Here's the second thing I want us to see from this passage. Not only the respect for spiritual overseers, but number two, we should have a regard for familial obligation. We have a regard for the familial obligation we have to one another. And mark this, the responsibilities he outlines here are not just those that the pastors are supposed to be doing. These are the responsibilities that all of us have to each other. But the context here specifically is the congregation, the individual members. I would remind you of what the pastors, the leaders in the church role is in relation to the congregation. Look at Ephesians chapter four, very familiar text. And he, that's Jesus, gave, that's a grace gift, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what are the elders and teachers and pastors to do? Equip. Who does the work of ministry? Who are the ministers? The members. (laughs) We're all ministers. So if somebody says, hey, are you a minister? Yes. You are a minister of the gospel. You're called to do the ministry in the church. The the elders are primarily called to equip um, the membership of the church to do the work of ministry. And we really see three specific obligations or responsibilities that you as a member of Lookout Valley Baptist Church have to the rest of the body. This is life together as a member of this body. The first one is this, in the spiritual family, you are to caution the casual. (laughs) Caution those who take their faith in Christ casually. And that's simply my alliterative way of communicating what the text says, admonish the idol. Now this word here for idol It was used in first century Greek, particularly as a military word. And it referred to somebody that was in in the military, somebody in the army that was not marching in step with the rest of the ranks. They're out of step. They're out of line. Maybe they're sluggish. Maybe they're slumbering. Maybe they're slowed down. Whatever it is, this meant you need to admonish those who are out of step with the rank and file of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In fact, in first century Greek culture, it really came to be used for someone who was not performing their duty or someone who was not fulfilling his responsibilities. And Paul says, this is what you, church member, need to do. Admonish. Interestingly, exact same word he uses earlier for what the overseers are supposed to do. Here's the thing. I may admonish you from the word, and I told you what admonish means. Hold up the word of God and say, this is what the Bible says we're to do as Christians. I may do it from a pulpit. All of us are called to do it on a couch, across from a lunch table, on the phone. Admonish one another. We're to caution the casual. Don't just leave it for the pastors and the elders to do it. We're all to be exhorting one another in this way. Now, if you've ever participated in a team sport, you can probably connect with this concept and this idea. I know when I wrestled in high school way back 34 years ago, It's a team sport, even though it's an individual sport. You still do it as a team. 
our head coach, Coach Loda, he was such a nice man, Coach Loda. Um, if he didn't think we were putting in the appropriate effort on the mat when we were drilling, he would say, all right, everybody out to the basketball court. What did that mean? We're about to run sprints on the basketball court. And Coach Loda would come out with this 30-gallon trash, plastic trash can and slam it right in the middle on center court. What did that trash can represent? We're likely going to be running sprints till somebody loses their lunch. What a nice guy, right? Now listen, that trash can was motivating for me. But you know what is a greater motivation? When we're drilling and we're practicing to have a teammate say, Troy, you got to push harder. Troy, you got to put in some more effort. We're going to be running sprints if we're not working more diligently here in the wrestling room. Why? Because that's motivating when somebody who is a teammate comes alongside me and says, we're in this together. And this is what Paul is calling all of us to do. When you see somebody who's out of step, who's out of rank, you go to that person and admonish the idol. There, there's a danger when someone approaches the Christian life in a casual way, in a laissez-faire fashion, and all of us are called to admonish the idol. Secondly, we are to fuel the faint. Fuel the faint. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. That word faint-hearted in Greek literally means small-souled. <laughs> small-souled. Someone whose hope, whose faith has shrunk. Now, I love the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this in his work. He renders it as encourage the timid. There are some among us who are more timid than others. There are some among us who, because of life, because of experiences, because of failures in the past, you've become small-souled. You've become faint-hearted. What's the call of every other Christian to do? To beat them when they're down? To encourage them. To fuel. To be like we read in, in Isaiah 42. We don't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. This word for encouragement, literally translated, means alongside to talk. That's it. You just come alongside somebody and talk. Just speak life into them. Communicate the truth to them that's going to fuel their faith. Exhortations from the word. Remind them of the promises of God. Isn't it the promises of God that really fuel our faith? That's what we do. We caution the casual. We fuel the faint. Here's the third one. We have a responsibility to shore up the shaky, to shore up the shaky. He says, help the weak. The weak there refers to those who are fragile, those who are having doubts. You ever had doubts? You get weak when you have doubts. You get shaky in your faith when you have doubts. And the obligation for fellow church members is to help them and this word literally means to buttress, to provide support, to shore up those who are shaky. This same idea is communicated in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Very important passage for life in the body. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. We caution the casual. We fuel the faint. We shore up the shaky. Three very different responses to different kinds of church members. In other words, we're looking out for each other. We're concerned for one another. 
And friends, when, when you do this, it doesn't mean you think you're better than somebody else. It doesn't mean that you think, you know, you're just a busybody getting involved in other people's lives. Friends, this is what family life should look like. This is what the scripture calls us to do. Now, here's how it typical, typically goes down in, let's just call him Bubba's mind. Here's what Bubba thinks. Well, I ain't seen so-and-so in church lately. I better call the preacher so he can check on him. Wrong response. Now, don't hear me wrong. Aren't pastors and elders supposed to check on folks? Absolutely. But it's everybody's job. Several years ago, I had somebody in our church come up to me, and they said, Pastor, I need to tell you something. I said, what's that? Well, so-and-so said they're not coming back to our church. I said, oh, man, that grieves my heart. What's going on? Well, they said they've been out for several weeks, and nobody from the church checked on them. I said, you checked on him, right? Well, yeah, I, I checked on him. And, and so-and-so, I know so-and-so called him. Well, yeah, so-and-so called him. And what about their small group leader? I know their small group leader checked on him. Yeah, that's true. I said, so none of the pastors checked on him. Right. It's everybody's job. Now, again, are pastors called to do that? Yes. But are church members called to do this? Answer? Yes. <laughs> this is our responsibility. My mama always told me, church members are like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You open it up. Some of them, they like this toffee. They are hard inside. <laughs> Some are like this caramel or caramel, soft and gushy inside. Some are like this cluster you're just a nut. <laughs> we got nuts here. Let's admit it. <laughs> Dealing with church members, or in the words of Barney Five, he's a nut, Andy. <laughs> we got nuts. We got people who are hard. We got people who are pliable and soft. It can be exhausting dealing with church members. It can be difficult. But... I think of, well, particularly look at what he says, and because of this truth, look what he says as he concludes this instruction to church members in verse 14c. He says, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. It's disappointing when you've counseled someone and you feel like, okay, we've nailed it. We know what the wrong action is. We know the attitudes. We know the habit patterns that need to adjust. A couple weeks later, oh, it happened again. Do we say, one and done, I'm done with you? <laughs> Do we say, oh, three strikes, you're out? Remember Peter came to Jesus one day and he said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive a brother who wrongs me? Up to seven times? What did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, there's not an arbitrary number when we stop forgiving. There's not an arbitrary number when we stop coming alongside knuckleheads and saying, let's try this one more time. We keep on keeping on. It's unceasing forbearance, unending forgiveness. And that really leads to the third and final principle I'll point out from this passage. What is our response to personal offense? Here's the thing. It's been my experience, the severest and most hurtful things I've experienced in my life 
have not been as a result of the wickedness in the world, but they've been as a result of people in the church. I think Paul understood this reality. Sheep bite other sheep. (laughs) It happens. So how do we respond with sheep biting sheep in the church? Here's what he says in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, there are three parts of that sentence, and I want to break that down as we move towards a conclusion. The first part is this. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. In other words, it should never enter your thought process I'm going to get a retaliation for what this brother just did to me. I can't wait to avenge what this sister just said about me. There should be nothing within our standard operating procedure that leads us to think we're to be about getting even. Only one person has the right to retaliate and to avenge a wrong suffered, and it's the person who's never wronged anyone else. It's God. None of us have that right And obeying this exhortation in the family is going to be characterized by forgiveness. Forgiveness. And listen, forgiveness hurts. Forgiveness is painful because you were really wounded. You were really spoken against. People really mess up. And Paul says, when that happens, do you just leave the church? No. No one repays anyone evil for evil. And then he adds on to that. Not only do you not retaliate and get your own revenge, but you're always seeking to do good to one another. What? I've heard well-meaning Christians say before to me, well, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but I don't mean I'm going to forget. Listen, forgiveness by definition means living in such a way as if the offense never occurred. Could you imagine if God forgave you that way? I'm going to forgive you, but I ain't going to forget you. This is exactly how this works out in life. Seek to do good to one another. Well, I did good to this person, and they just rebuffed me again. Seek to do good to one another. This is the clear command. This is just like Jesus, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Mark 10, 45, the son of man has come not to be served. What can y'all do for me? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, look out Valley Baptist Church. You are called to live out the Christ life. In this fellowship and in the world, which leads to the third phrase in this sentence, and to everyone. It's just not about doing good to each other in this church. We are called as Christians to do good to everyone. Now, this is very important for us to bear in mind, particularly with the cultural moment we find ourselves in in 2020 in American culture. Because as Christians, evangelical Christians, become a smaller and smaller and more hated segment of the population, there will be a tendency in us to respond in anger, to be vengeful, 
and to not do good to outsiders. He says, do good to everyone. In fact, I want you to look at this next slide. If you were to ask your average 20 or 30-something on the street, which of these individuals best represents to you your opinion of evangelical Christians? What do you think they'd say? This is not a scientific data I'm reporting to you, but my own personal opinion, I would guess 9 out of 10 20 or 30-year-olds on the street would say the angry Bible basher. Not the good-looking hand model, right? (laughs) The angry Bible basher. Now, to be fair, secular media has painted us poorly in movies and TV shows and on the news. But to be fair, Christians haven't done a whole lot to help that concept. Paul says, our attitude towards the secular, godless culture is to do good to them. Well, well, I'll do good to those who agree with me politically. I'll do good to those who have the same opinion of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms as I have. I'll do good to those who vote the same way I vote. I'll do good to those who are straight and not gay. Is there any qualification in the text for those distinctions? No. Do good to the gays. Do good to the transgenders. Do good to the liberals. Well, they destroyed our country. They didn't destroy the church of Christ. You love them. You show them Christ. You totally displace this mindset they have about what a Christ follower looks like and how a Christ follower acts. Why should we have this posture as Christians to do good to a godless culture? Because, friend, Christ did good to a godless you. And he did good to a godless me. We have no response but to love the lost. Now, I skipped over verse 10 of these, or the ten, one of these 10 specific exhortations because I wanted to save it to, for my conclusion right here. It's the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Church, we're called to live in peace. Though the world around us is cray-cray. Though the world around us is distorted and godless, we're called to live in peace. In fact, here's a principle I want us to understand as we close. Look at this next slide. Every peaceful solution between warring parties has normally been brought about by the shedding of blood. Think through human history. Whenever there have been warring factions, warring tribes, warring nations, any peaceful solution was normally brought about by the shedding of blood. There was, between me and God, a wall of hostility. Warring parties. But that wall of hostility has been broken down through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. This is the gospel. That my sin separated me from God and I was therefore due his full penalty for the guilt of my sin. But God broke down the wall of hostility 
brought peace to where there was no peace because Jesus shed his blood. And friends, as we think on that gospel truth, as we form our opinions from that gospel truth, as we approach the world in which we live with that gospel truth, we will be formed by the gospel, we will be molded by the gospel, we will be shaped by the gospel. And we will be most effective at sharing the gospel when we've been shaped by the gospel. And that leads to my last thought. A church that is shaped by the gospel will be a church which more effectively shares the gospel. And that's what we've been called to do. Let me pray for us as we move towards a response.